Come on, Jimmy. Who are you going to fight against when this balloon of yours goes up? Forces of anarchy. Wreckers of law and order. See? Communists, Maoists, Trotskyists, Neo-Trotskyists, Crypto-Trotskyists, Union leaders, Communist Union leaders. See? Atheists, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government, hug the government, love the government. Hi David, thanks for being with us today. So um, you're here to talk, chat with us uh, about forensic uh, linguistics. Now I'm going to start with a quote from Shakespeare, if that's all right. Okay. Yeah, sorry, I'm springing this on you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> In Henry II, um, I think, I guess Henry the King says, who shall rid me of this turbulent priest? Right? Okay. So what I'm thinking is, right, uh, on that indefinite article alone, I think like four knights sort of set off to kill the, the, the right. Archbishop of Canterbury. Yeah, yeah. 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 So could you convict Henry on, on that? Uh, of on incitement. That? Yeah, of incitement, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, uh, I guess, so. I mean, the, grammatically it's a question, so I'm, it, I wouldn't, I'm not sure whether it would, mm. it would, it would pass as a as an order um, so you'd have to give a wink as well basically it would have to be a you know <laughs> wink wink don't write that down <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I mean I, the reason I asked that is that kind of what forensic linguistics mm. does is it something that that uh, in a very basic level examines language for um, well for the detection of crime yeah so there's generally um, the field of forensic linguistics which is still quite new um, sort of gone back a few decades um, is split into two parts so the first part and some people disagree with this but for the sake of argument we'll go ahead on one of the sides of forensic linguistics or one of the halves of forensic linguistics is to do with language and the law and the legal process so legal documents uh, the examination of witnesses the police caution um, police interviews, things like that, that are involved in the legal process, which of course language is integral to. Um, they, they, they say it in the in the caution, you know, anything mm. you do say maybe. So uh, like the Miranda rights. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah, yeah, in the, in the states. So, um, and then the other half is the the sort of stuff that you were just mentioning there about the language as evidence. So, if there's any sort of uh, criminal or civil case where language constitutes some of the evidence, then a forensic linguist could be could be enlisted to help the police or the legal teams or a private client with writing a report about various things. So that could be uh, anonymous documents. So who, who, which of our suspects is most likely to have written this document? Who is this on a recording? Um, so yeah. So it's a type of detection. There's an element of detection. There is it. an element of detection. Um, and some of the most high profile cases are cases of detection. Yeah. Um, so there's the you know there's murder cases for instance where um, a, a, normally a husband though not always has has um, is suspected of murdering his wife mm -hmm. let's say and has sent text messages from her phone and the police have reason to suspect that those text messages aren't written by her uh, and then the police will will often ask a forensic linguist to give an opinion on that. So a forensic linguist can basically establish uh, provenance of. A particular voice, a particular identity of a person? Uh, they can. Um, normally they will be more measured in their response or opinion than saying this is definitely this person, this is definitely not this person. Yeah. Um, it's normally a, a sort of scale of consistency or distinctiveness, whether that's written style or um, things like voice quality, pronunciation, distinctive elements of those type of things. So normally uh, a, a report would be 
um, measured in that way rather than a, a binary, yes, this is your guy, or no, this isn't your guy. Right. So maybe we should sort of back it up a bit. Okay. Right? So, I mean, forensic linguistics, so let's focus on the second part of it. So okay. you're a linguist, right? Yeah. So what uh, what is it? What sort of methodologies do you draw from then? Like, could we say that, that forensic linguistics is a science, for example? Yeah, well, some would argue that, and especially if you are to give admissible evidence in court, you would have to, you know, ensure or or at least convince the judge or whoever uh, is presiding over a particular case that your evidence was scientific enough um, and reliable enough and accurate enough to be, for instance, put in front of a jury. Um, but yeah, linguistics more generally, some of it is sort of definitely scientific, experimental linguistics, psycholinguistics, cognitive linguistics, areas like that. Other elements of linguistics, like discourse analysis, which is what I do primarily, um, is is less easy to convince people that it's a science. So you have to, especially in a forensic context, be very clear and systematic on the methodologies that you've used so that they're applicable um, and and transparent. Okay, so when you said discourse analysis, mm. what well, what do you mean by that? I guess then okay. the question: yeah. What is the, your specific version of forensic linguistics? Yeah, so basically, my definition of discourse analysis would be the analysis of any language in use, whether that's written or spoken. Um, speech acts, as a philosopher might say. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's speech acts. Certainly, is a big part of discourse analysis. I'd imagine, and uh, <laughs> and, and pragma early doors pragmatics. Um, but forensic linguistics generally is the application of other fields of linguistics, like sociolinguistics or language variation, language and identity, um, corpus linguistics, which is the analysis of large bodies of text to identify patterns in language use, um, critical discourse analysis, which is the identification or the addressing of social inequalities or dominance or power in discourse, pragmatics, semantics, whatever you like, any sort of foundational fundamental of linguistic fundamental elements of linguistics applied in a forensic context um, and one of those is discourse analysis so discourse analysis can can stretch from for instance you know conversation analysts in a forensic context could analyze uh, the turn taken the responses the question types of police interviews in, in an interrogation for instance um, similarly applied to uh, similar conversation analysis could be applied to a cross-examination of a vulnerable witness, let's say, or a witness who is allegedly a, a, a victim of sexual assault or rape or, you know, anything. Um, or it could be the analysis of a police statement to identify whether or not the witness in question is responsible for authoring that statement or whether it's been dictated to them or whether it's been forced out of them by someone else. Um, it's been known to happen that Well, yeah. one of the, you know, Malcolm Coulthard, one of the, well, Quarter, yeah. yeah, yeah, on the on the text, but the the uh, sort of landmark forensic linguistic case, one of the ones that kicked everything off. Well, that's a good idea. We could talk about an example of yeah, the case. Yeah, is the Derek Bentley statement. Um, so remind me. So Derek Bentley and uh, a friend of his were uh, were arrested. I think Derek Bentley was was a teenager at the time, but he had learning difficulties, um, and they were found on top of a roof by police um, and they've been chased up there by the police and they were on top of the roof and, and various things happened and um, his friend ended up shooting a police officer um, and they were both arrested and charged for murder 
and the only bit of evidence really at, at the time that the police officer was shot uh, Derek Bentley's hands were tied behind his back mm. arrested he was under arrest he'd been arrested and um, the evidence that was used to convict Derek Bentley uh, for a crime for which he was eventually hanged um, was his witness statement that he gave to the police or allegedly gave to the police when he was arrested and um, and he was this is he was erroneously charged yeah yeah it turns out that sort of decades later under Malcolm's analysis it found that the language in the police statement was more typical of the register of the police than it would be of a guy who was for all intents and purposes illiterate so the the the, the allegation is that it was stitched up uh, in a nutshell yeah mm. and he was um, uh, posthumously pardoned okay <laughs> must be that's, that's must be very pleased with that yeah yeah, yeah. I know yeah. Yeah, yeah after sort of yeah decades of campaigning yeah. by his family that was the linguistic evidence and that was a trade that was a sort of yeah. watershed moment for yeah. forensic linguistics right so maybe we can say then what is it that, what did the sort of the the forensic linguist analysis do mm. specifically mm. to uh, attribute authorship to okay. uh, the Mr. Police. B- to the police rather than Mr. Bintley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so it was, I mean, there was various things that he did, that Malcolm did in his analysis, but the um, one of the biggest ones, essentially, in any authorship case, you would get the disputed document, which in this case was the, the statement, and you'd compare it against whatever reference set you liked. Um, and what um, Malcolm did was he compared it against other witness statements written by witnesses, um, some of which were part of that case, some of which were part of others. Um, and also the writing of the police and one of the key bits of the analysis was a tiny sort of smoking gun was the word then and, okay okay um, and the order the, the the grammatical order in which um, then was used and Malcolm found that the use of the word then in terms of its frequency and the constructions in which it was found was more typical of the register found in the police written reports than other witnesses and that meant we could say then definitively that, definitively as well, mm. that uh, it was uh, a member of the the local constabulary. Rather I, I than... think, yeah, I think we would uh, we would probably say that it was more consistent to have been more consistent with being written by the police rather than Derek mm. Bentley. So, um, I mean, that type of work it must be painstaking. It must be very very detailed you must need a real attention to minutiae yeah for sure i mean that's where the, the you know the devil's in the detail and, <laughs> and especially right. yeah. um especially in in cases where because everyone always asks with authorship questions and students ask people ask at conferences you know couldn't someone just disguise their style mm. well, um, that's a good question that yeah and you know they can and you know they, there is a a good amount of work um especially at the moment being done about imitation and imitating other people's language styles, especially in Undercover Policing by Nicky McLeod and Tim Grant. Um, but the idea is that some elements of people's language choice will be under conscious control and they'll be the bits that they'll be able to swap out and say, well, I'll, I'll move a little bit closer to someone else and away from myself. But then there will be other elements which are not under their conscious control. Uh, the ideal in authorship analysis will be able to identify those. Wow, that's hard. That's it is. Yeah. Well, it depends on the case. So there might be. In, I should say that authorship analysis is not just a forensic problem. Um, forensic authorship analysis is a forensic problem, but authorship analysis generally, for instance, of literary works or um, or whatever, is it can be a computational linguist problem. So you could like establish the provenance of a Shakespearean text. Yeah, loads of stuff like that. Um, called stylometry which is the statistical measurement of style where they have hundreds of thousands of words of data to run machine learning 
algorithms on to identify normally on the basis of the frequency of different linguistic features. Um, and it comes a, it becomes a text, text classification problem. And you can separate or you can disentangle mm. conscious authorship from unconscious authorship. Uh, well, sometimes you can. There's an idea that function words, so the little words of grammar, so prepositions, determiners, the little grammar words rather than nouns and verbs and things like that yeah. are uh, less likely to be under the conscious control because of the part of the fabric of the way in which we speak and write. But I would argue that those little grammar words are just symptomatic of other linguistic choices rather than being distinctive in and of themselves. That's fascinating, isn't it? So would you go as far as then saying, is, is it like that you can you can have a an individual can have a linguistic fingerprint? Uh, that is always uh, an analogy that's drawn. Is it a good one? Um, it's normally one that forensic linguists would shirk away from because... Two different disciplines, I guess. Well, mainly because... And I've, this is mainly where my research is in this area, um, but mainly because if I had your fingerprint, I have all of the information I need. Or if I have a bit of your DNA, I have all the information that I need because that's unique to you. But if we have a sample of writing, it might have distinctive elements of your writing style, but you might share those writing uh, those elements of writing style with someone else. We just don't know. Mm. Whereas with DNA and fingerprints, we do know that they're unique um, so there's a little bit more legwork to do beyond there's just... a, there is a there is a little bit more legwork and also there's a there's there's a theory in linguistics called idiolect which is that every person has their own distinctive unique version of their language that's an accepted theory by and large but it's an impossible one to prove because we don't have the data sets to compare every single person with every right person. it's empirically impossible to you know um, yeah. it's it seems perfectly possible but mm. in a forensic context, if you have to prove that, yes. then it's difficult. So that's why we would not... I mean, the forensic linguistic fingerprint is one that has some currency, I think, in terms of that idiolect theory. But in practical terms, we would never say that this is a unique a unique piece of language written by only one person. Yeah, so, yeah, and as well, when you say idiolect, you mean, you mean something broader than, say, something like accent, I guess. Oh, sure. Idiolect would be the whole lot. It would be your whole... Um, your whole linguistic pattern, everything, um, and early early conceptions of idiolect is not just anything that you uh, have said, but anything that you could say. So it's not just um, the language that you've used, but it's also the language that you have the ability or competence to use, which is immeasurable. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, idiolect would encapsulate every single possible linguistic choice you could make, conscious or not. Okay, now um, I was wondering, is there any other particular cases that you could uh, mention? Because it's, it's a usual, it's a good way, I think, to to, to, to make apparent uh, the, the discipline that is forensic linguistics. Yeah, I mean, in terms of, uh, we've spoken a bit about authorship, so we can do a little bit of, um, I can I can talk a little bit about more recorded data, sure. spoken data. Um, a case that is often sort of cited in this, in this way uh, is the Yorkshire Ripper hoax. Remind me. Yeah, so there was um, obviously the Yorkshire Ripper was was doing his thing in the, in the seventies, and um, the police at the time who were working on the case, and this was at a, a time before forensic linguistics in quotation marks was a field. Um, the police received a recording and a series of letters purporting to be from the Yorkshire Ripper, um, and. The police at the time, obviously West Yorkshire Police, sent that to um, sent the recording to Stanley Ellis, who was a dialectologist at Leeds University, um, to say, "Where's this? What can you tell us about this person?" 
which is easier to do with speech than it is with writing. In order to narrow see down if the can, suspects. Right, and see, can we sort of compare it to the person who is the Yorkshire Ripper, is that right? Well, they didn't know who the Yorkshire Ripper was. Right, right. So, so they didn't have any They didn't have any, so any, any lead, any clue that they could get would help narrow down the possible pool of suspects in, in, an, in an investigative way to aid the investigation. And Stanley Ellis, remarkably, um, sort of pinpointed two villages near Sunderland that this guy could have been from, but suspected that he hadn't lived there. The hoaxer. The hoaxer. Hadn't lived there his entire life. At the time, they didn't know it was a hoax. How did he do this? Um, well, the, the well from the northeast, some of your vowels are giveaways. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you are from the northeast. I am from the northeast, a little bit further north of than Sunderland, but um, but yeah, on the basis of of his of his predominantly vowel vowel features, he identified two villages that he could have been from. And as time went on, and um, there was questions raised as to whether and they were near each other, these villages, oh, within a half a mile of each other, and. Um, over time, there was questions raised as to whether this was real, whether this was a hoax, um, and Stanley Ellis warned against the police only investigating people who had an accent that sounded like the guy on the record. Anyway, um, eventually Peter Sutcliffe was arrested and convicted and charged, but he obviously didn't have an ac- a Sunderland accent, and unlike the hoaxer, so suddenly you have a hoax case. Like the Yorkshire accent. Yeah, exactly. Um, suddenly you have a hoax case, and the, 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 it was it was sort of reopened, and... Um, Oddly enough, in two th- it was... So- and the police had the information from the the linguistic specialist, right? Mm. Yeah, they had they had that information, and I don't know to what extent they acted on it. I don't know what I, to extent they sort of searched around Yorkshire for people who had a Sunderland accent, but... Well, it would make you stick out a little bit. It would a bit, yeah. <laughs> um, just a tad, but um, eventually the, the DNA evidence was used on the envelopes that the guy had used... Uh, to send the letters and the recordings, this guy was identified as John Humble. He was brought in, and he was uh, from sort of a stone's throw away from the two villages. With remarkable, yeah, he must feel very vindicated. Yeah, yeah, um, and uh, and this guy was obviously arrested for for the hawks and the the rest is history. But that's a big sort of what we would call oh, spe- speaker profiling case, where you have a recording and the the forensic politicians or the forensic speech science scientists are asked. What can you tell us about this person? So, I mean, what's interesting to me about that, I think, is that when um, I said, like, the police didn't act on the information they had, but... I'm not sure to what extent they did. Yeah, Mm. so, I mean, and it's probably understandable because it's cases like this that gave the discipline of forensic linguistics more respectability, more legitimacy, is that right? Yeah, Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's it's like anything, you know, if there's there's precedent, um, if there's cases that a, a judge or, or legal counsel could point to and say this methodology was used or a similar methodology was used in case a b or c with this effect then then obviously yeah that's going to be that's going to be better um but i should say that in normal cases if there is forensic linguistic evidence it will be part of a much bigger evidential picture it's unlikely if not impossible, that the forensic linguistic evidence will be the stuff that gets you guy. Yeah, so so the police, detectives, investigators, forensic linguistics, you're saying, will be a small component of uh, a much bigger, richer picture. Hopefully, yeah. Um, which includes fingerprinting, DNA, all of these things, yeah. Yeah, it would it would be um, it would be part of a of a bigger sort of patchwork of evidence, ideally. Yeah, so the other case, I mean, it's the uh, the Netflix case, let's yeah. call it. Yeah. <laughs> I, know, I, I know we want to talk about this, but it's because uh, the reason I bring it up is because the, 
there was a Netflix series at the moment on the, the Unabomber, mm. uh, the, uh, I guess, American uh, terrorist. Mm. I mean, there's not really a real way to no, describe yeah. it, but it's it's kind of sort of sexy forensic linguistics at the moment due to this sort of series, which is great. Like, I mean, I don't know if you remember, David, like when uh, when Cracker was out. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah, like loads of people started doing criminology yeah. at like university. So, so the future is uh, safe for you, David. Yeah. Um, hopefully. Now, hopefully. Now, the, the thing is, though, I mean, that case is really interesting because that's, I guess, I mean, one of the most high-profile instances of forensic linguistics being used uh, successfully. Um, so maybe, I, mean, I know you're familiar with the, the that case. I know you're familiar with the um, well, the guy who was doing it. Mm. Okay, what, what, sorry, what was his name again? Uh, Jim Fitzgerald. Jim Fitzgerald, yeah. precisely, yeah. And he was, I mean, what was, uh, well, what was unique about how forensic linguistics was used to detect the Unabomber? Because, I mean, the Unabomber is uh, sort of a, Campaign to one for over many years, mm. and uh, it, it was. I mean, I think forensic linguistics was the the, the key to his detection. Yeah, I mean that's uh, um, the the Unabomber the Unabomber documentary on Netflix has got a lot of sort of a lot of uh, like you say attention to forensic linguistics. Tons of people asking me, "Oh, yeah, you heard the." Watch the Unabomber documentary. I must admit, I've not seen it, um, but the busman's holiday for you, basically. Yeah. <laughs> but I do know, obviously, of the case, and I have seen. I've met Jim Fitzgerald at my first ever forensic linguistics conference, and yeah, the the, the linguistic evidence was 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 good, and and in terms of uh, in terms of catching the Unabomber, and what was important in that case was that the the evidence that was used in the analysis that was used actually interlinked quite a lot with. The linguistic theory of idiolect. Um, so, as I understand it, um, once uh, the FBI and, and had, had done their linguistic analysis and identified some commonalities between the manuscript, the, the manifesto, the Unabomber manifesto, yeah, yeah. and some stuff that he'd written before that, they identified some commonalities in that. And the defense, as far as I'm aware, had a, a fairly high profile linguist to say that the commonalities meant nothing because anyone could write anything at any time. Um, but what became clear was that while that's true, the more time, the, 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 the more individual elements you add together in terms of co-selecting things, the, the co-occurrence of these features in the same text is, is more evidence that it's written by the same person. So while it's true really that anyone can write anything at any time, the more things that you find in common in a particular text. Um, the less likely that is to have been written by two different people. Um, he had a uh, Fitzgerald had a, I mean, he had a sort of a bit of an uphill battle of convincing, um, well, the police that uh, that uh, of the legitimacy of of his uh, his efforts. Okay, yeah, is that what's in the documentary? Is that not true? No, I don't know. I, yeah, I, that yeah. seems to be the impression. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, I don't know. I mean, um, I know of it obviously from from forensic linguistics literature. I do know that there's. Um, because essentially what they did was use the web as a sort of reference set to see if you put all of these individual word choices basically um, into I am I guess it was an early iteration of Google or some search engine and what texts come up which of course was a fraction of the size that Google is now or the internet um, then the only texts that were coming up were online versions of this manifesto which give credence to the fact that the only place where these words were found together was in the manifesto um, which was which, which was evidence that he wrote it and it narrowed basically the field of suspects in I guess for which, sure yeah which allowed police to um, 
well now they're they're, they're yeah I mean if you search if you have a if you have one text where there's a, a, a sort of distinctive looking or um, significant set of linguistic co-selections language choices that are made together um, and then you find those same set of choices in another text um, and none, no others in, insofar as that the web-based methodology then that's really strong evidence, that, really strong evidence but uh, as, as always it would depend on which texts were available in that set that you were referencing it against um, and there is a book written by a colleague in Manchester Metropolitan University called Sam Lana and he's written a, a short a sort of book I think it's based on his one of his degrees um, that sort of problematizes that Weber's Weber's reference set method, um, but yeah, the Unabomber it's sort of got a lot of a lot of attention on forensic linguistics, and some some of it's good, some of it's not so good. Um, so while I, I'm certainly of the camp where the you know the more people we can get through the door to teach forensic linguistics to, the better. Um, but at the same time, it, I think it may raise expectations as to what forensic linguists can do. Not every case is the Unabomber. Um, so it's not as uh, it's not as romantic and uh, exciting <laughs> as that. Now. Uh, some of it, I'm sure, some of my students would attest that it's not. But um, you know, the, the, those are the those are the spicy cases that get people into it. Notoriety, and um, and I'm all for that. And you know, if, if I don't know about the. The legitimacy of the documentary, but um, but yeah, it got it got people talking and it got people interested in forensic linguistics. And as far as I'm concerned, that's a good thing. Now, another thing that um, you uh, work on uh, is uh, authorship attribution. Yeah, yeah. and uh, could you tell me then about uh, the Ginny Nickel case? I can tell you about the Ginny Nickel case. So that was another um, case on which. Um, Malcolm was the expert witness. Malcolm Coulthard. So, uh, so just so everybody can know, this is uh, Malcolm. Malcolm Coulthard is your co-author with Alison Johnson, and yeah. and that's your your book, which is an introduction to forensic linguistics, language, and evidence. That's um, that's kind of sort of a benchmark uh, text for teaching undergrads about. Yeah, it's one of a one of a handful yeah. of textbooks on on forensic linguistics. Um, it's actually the textbook that I learned. The first edition was a textbook that I used when I was an undergrad with Alison at Leeds, and um, after my PhD, Viva, um, who, Malcolm was my external examiner. Alison was my supervisor, and he asked me if I would be an author on the second edition, and I was delighted with that. So yeah, um, and actually, there's a, there's a section on the authorship attributions chapter which I wrote about Jenny Nickel. Jenny Nickel, it was a murder case. Um, and it was it was um, it was the type of type of case that I, I mentioned to you at the start about uh, Jenny Nichol um, went missing, and there were a series of text messages sent from her phone um, saying you know various things, but basically I'm still alive, I've run away, blah blah blah, um, and uh, the police had reason to suspect that they weren't written by her, but they were in fact written by her her lover at the time, David Hodgson. And Malcolm was given a series of text messages, as is ideal in this kind of case, a set of text messages that were known to have been written by Jenny, over which there was no dispute, and a set of text messages that were known to be written by David Hodgson, over which there were no disputes, and then the disputed text messages that the police had reason to believe were written by someone other than Jenny. Well, that's interesting in and of itself, because, I mean, uh, things like text messaging, social media messaging, mm. that brings a whole new sort of... Forensic linguistics is now branching out into sort of uh, For sure. technolo technology and the internet and so on. There's, yeah. there's way more ways to write to people now than, <laughs> yeah, than there used yeah. to be, you know. Right. And, and um, so, yeah, there's a, a lot of the cases these days are electronic in nature, you know. There's, yeah. So your, your colleague, uh, uh, Malcolm Coulter, yeah. who is looking at these uh, text messages comparing 
definitive text messages uh, uh, attributed to Jenny Nickel and uh, the ones that were claim, um, claimed to be Jenny Nickel. Mm. Now, how did he, how did, that's the yeah. million dollar question, how did he separate one from the other? Yeah, so, well, in terms of the text messages that he was given by the police, there was no dispute over who'd written those, mm. but the, his job was to offer an opinion as to uh, which of the two candidate writers, um, Jenny or, or, or Hodgson, were most likely to have written the text messages in question. And and he identified a number of features. There were um, overall, I think there were nine features, again, which were core selections. They weren't they didn't happen on their own, but they were in the same texts. Um, some of them were to do with things like spacing in between letters, spacing in between words. All right, so does somebody have uh, two uh, two spaces after a full stop? Well, like that, well yeah. one of them was, um, so for instance, the word, the, the number two instead of the word two. Um, for instance, I think an example was I've gone to Keswick or something like that. Right. And uh, one of the authors had a had a space between two and Keswick, and the other the other didn't, or the other didn't. Whenever they used the number two instead of the word two, one of them had a space after it, and the other didn't. Consistently in their known document, their known text messages, and it was I think nine features which um, Malcolm found to be in the disputed texts to be more consistent with. Um, being written by David Nick, David uh, David Hodgson than than Jenny Nickel, um, and that was the beginning of how you could discriminate them. Yeah, yeah, and that was it. And and Malcolm, in that case, if I remember rightly, was given the um, the unique opportunity, as far as I'm aware, of presenting to the jury the evidence in form of a, a PowerPoint presentation, rather than the normal cross examination, question and answer. Um, Sort of, was this an innovation? As far as I'm aware, um, and I'm, I certainly am of the understanding that it's not common. Um, but normally, you know, expert witnesses, um, from what I hear, leave very unsatisfied with the evidence that they were able to give because the barristers controlled all of the questions and therefore all of their answers. But in this case, um, Malcolm was able to show the jury a, a PowerPoint presentation where he presented an ob uh, an objective case uh, for yeah, where attribution. He, yeah, he had the text messages from Jenny, the text messages from David, and he had the disputed text. And you could just highlight the features that were common to David's style and different to Jenny's. Um, and eventually, David was uh, convicted um, of murder. And what was really important for forensic linguistics in that case, which speak to what you were saying earlier about the more cases this is used in the better um, is that the the decision was appealed by David Nickel on the basis that the forensic linguistic evidence was unreliable and that appeal was squashed on the basis mm. that the forensic linguistic evidence was reliable which was great because it was directly being challenged isolated as, as being challenged in terms of its reliability and it stood the stood, stood the appeal stood yeah. the, stood stood the uh, stood stood the test basically exactly, yeah. yeah which is great yeah um now uh, another thing um that uh, well you you alluded to there is that um um, well, is it the case that um I guess sort of the courts uh, the criminal justice system are using forensic linguistics as um expert witnesses? I mean, I presume that is the case, but is it um is it something that's contested or is it, again is it I mean so I don't mean to sort of to, to, you know to sort of dispute the legitimacy sure, dispute yeah. all the time but uh, uh, are are people using forensic linguistics in court to establish provenance and attribution like this a lot more 
For sure, yeah. There, um, the, in authorship cases, not not just authorship cases, but um, yeah, people are using forensic linguistics, and and af- often actually, what happens is the experts offer to or, or ask to write a report, which will be part of the evidence, but less frequently are they asked to then therefore appear in court and be cross-examined. Um, so normally the evidence is is just a report, but yeah, people are, are using forensic linguistics for sure, um, and. You know, in some cases, you might, in forensic linguists, at least those, and I must say that I've never been an expert witness in a case, nor do I particularly have the appetite to do that at this stage. But, um, but you know, if the if the if the defence find out that, the, or vice versa, find out that one side's using a forensic linguist, then they're often going to enlist one themselves um, to try and. What did the authors or? To, well, maybe to, that's unfair, but um, yeah. To, yeah, to try and you know find out whether they could you know, rebut anything that was written in the report from the other side. And and actually what you find is that because there's a handful of forensic linguists in the country, they often know each other. <laughs> um, and, and what would be a great movement actually would be to get the two experts to talk before the trial or before they stand and say, look, what we can we agree on and what are the points for dispute between these between these different reports? But yeah, it, it, actually the spoken recording, so forensic speech science, which analyzes the voice on um, sort of disputed recordings rather than the written things, which is authorship analysis, is far more commonly used in court, um, far more commonly uh, part of a, of a trial. Yeah, and as you say yourself, it doesn't necessarily have to be really, the really glamorous cases. It could be just like a, well, a plagiarism case or something like that. Could it be? Or... Yeah, I mean, obviously that wouldn't be a criminal necessarily. Well, of course, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, you know, there, were, there are various... Um, various different cases that you hear and not all of them are high profile cases um unfortunately some of them are very serious cases um but yes you know they can not they're not all murders they're not all kidnaps um there might be um you know it might just be on a recording a forensic speech scientist might just be or a forensic linguist might just be asked to say we've got this recording which of the people who were recorded do you think said this bit this line in the transcript this this part of the recording because it may be evidential um, and you know the forensic linguist might just be asked to say right well who, which one was it that may not necessarily be a murder case and, and also um, any sort of any decent forensic linguist if they have a look at the evidence and there's either not enough or um, you know they have they have concerns about it would would say I don't know you absolutely have to be able to say I, I don't know especially in this country where you know your, your duty is to the court rather than the side who's paying you um, you you have to be able to say I don't know because a, an informed I don't know is better than a guess yes <laughs> yeah, or a guess no that yeah. would have potentially well, catastrophic. Well, did you just making stuff up? Yeah, and, and you know that would set the field back sort of no end. So, um, so yeah. Is there any is there any cases where they've got it wrong, forensic linguists? Is there any sort of notable cases? Because that would be. A good way of, I think, that would be a good way of disentangling good mm. forensic linguistics from mm. bad linguistics. Um, forensic linguistics, sorry. Yeah, yeah I, uh, off the top of my head, I don't think so. Um, there will be, of course, cases where the forensic linguistic evidence has not been admitted by the judge. Right, so there's you can have admissible evidence or inadmissible yeah, evidence. You'd hope that if the forensic linguistic evidence was poor, or the analysis was poor, that it would not be put in front of a jury. At which point you wouldn't know whether the evidence was good or bad because it hasn't been part of the trial. Um, off the top of my head, I can't think of any necessarily bad forensic linguistics. I mean, there there are 
you know, this is part of the, the, the problem with things like this Unabomber documentary where, you know, you do get sort of well-intentioned um, amateurs, basically. Right, <laughs> um, yeah. Wanting to, wanting to have the two pennies worth because it's the same as any language-related field or any linguistics-related field. Any, everyone speaks language, so you think, therefore, you're a... They're not automatic experts. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Whereas, you know... They haven't put the hours in under discipline. Yeah, they, they don't have the, the pedigree. They don't have the experience. They don't the have tools, the expertise. Yeah. Um, so I'm absolutely sure, if not in this country, then in on the continent or in the States, there will absolutely be people who should not be given forensic linguistic evidence, but are. Mm. Um, but for right or, rightly or wrongly, I don't know who they are. Yeah. What would it be for you, then, that would... I mean, just the general question, like sort of the... What would it be for you that sort of counts as uh, that would uh, would be would be admissible evidence? What would be the essential uh, conditions? I think the first thing would be that there would have to be enough in terms of quantity and quality of data for an analysis to be performed. I would raise eyebrows if there were a, a, a tiny amount of, of of data and conclusive opinions were offered. Um, there is a there, there was a little bit of controversy um, in the field when I just joined it, sort of the mid two thousands, about a Facebook case in which a forensic linguist who is in many areas very well respected in authorship analysis produced a report that was um, discredited and criticised by other forensic linguists. Had a bad day. Um, I'm not sure what influence that's had on his reputation nor his livelihood, but. Uh, some of the some of the work that he's done has been pivotal in in, in authorship analysis and forensic stylistics in particular. Um, so, think the point that I, I was raising there was that at the moment there are no explicit standards. So, um, you know, one person's rigorous analysis might be another person's garbage. Um, but hopefully, as time goes on, we can we can reach agreements about standards. And I know that there is movements doing towards that what would be your recommendations uh, well <laughs> uh, there are people the spot, who are being paid far more than me to make those decisions but um, the my recommendation would be that there would have to be enough data and it would have to be good quality yeah as you said there would have to be the linguistic features on the basis of which comparisons were being made in an authorship case let's say the linguistic features that were being used were um, were frequent enough were um, basically, my biggest concern would be that you can clearly evidence linguistic consistency in a person and linguistic distinctiveness between that person and others. And that's primarily from sort of Tim Grant's work uh, on another text message case of uh, linguistic consistency and linguistic distinctiveness rather than ideas of the linguistic fingerprint where this is definitely that person it's going to be on a scale of consistency and distinctiveness and in order to achieve those measurements of consistency and distinctiveness you need enough data um, I would also want people to be really clear on the methods that they've used why they've chosen the linguistic features that they've chosen why would those features discriminate one author from not only other authors in the case or potential authors in the case but anyone and this is a this is an area where there's tons of work being done and because on the one hand, to go back to the sort of the stylo stylometric computationalists who do work on things like Shakespeare, um, who have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of words of data, can can identify with ninety nine percent accuracy who wrote what, 
um, or which text belongs to which author. But in a forensic case, you have far less data than that. So you have this this these two sets which of runs people. against one of your essential criteria yeah, you need a lot of data yeah, yeah for sure you have you have these two sets of people who are computationalists who can do really really rigorous mainly machine learning techniques and identify authors and texts really accurately and linguists who have the skills to do that on much smaller data sets but those two people aren't talking to each other so one thing that i would really like to see and i'm not alone in this is for forensic linguists and um, computational linguists or even data scientists or whatever to have conversations about how to to come to robust scientific in uh, in scare quotes um, reliable methods okay now one of the other things that you um, that you uh, focus on is um, uh, forensic phonetics um, yeah. Yeah, now uh, I don't even know what that means, David. Like, uh, yeah, so you're basically talking to an idiot here, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so could you maybe explain what uh, forensic phon phonetics is and what it, what consequences it has for analysing the human voice? Okay. Yeah. Well, um, forensic phonetic. Well, forensic speech science is what they often refer. The, the the group themselves refer. I mean, the the the, tech, the chapter that I wrote in the textbook is called forensic phonetics. But um, so speaker profiling is that right? Speaker profiling, speaker comparison. Um, so, that, for instance, the the uh, the Yorkshire Ripper hoax would be a case for a forensic phonetician right. slash forensic speech science, which is <laughs> ironically a bit of a mouthful. But um, but yeah, so that would be sort of speaker comparison is the sister discipline of authorship analysis or authorship attribution. The difference being that the evidence is recorded rather than written down um, and yeah they deal with a whole range of things from you know identifying voices on on recordings comparing recordings to see if the speaker in one recording is the same as the speaker in another recording um, forensic speaker profiling so what can you tell us about this person on the basis of their voice where they're from how old are they um, things like that which some elements of a person's personality or, or or character or, or easier or biological makeup are easier to identify than others um, for instance you know there's some people who say you can identify how big someone is on the basis of the human voice that you find on the recording right. whereas right. other people say you can't but things like age gender is obviously much easier because biologically women tend to have higher pitched voices within usually, a certain yeah. range usually yeah um, but yeah so they deal with a whole range of, of, of problems that are to do with uh, any evidence that's recorded um, and to answer your question about the human voice um, which is one of the reasons why forensic phon phoneticians are often the envy of authorship analysts is that uh, a two uh, you know a 20 second recording contains tons of information about a person's voice because we 20 seconds that's all you need yeah well it depends again uh, if I'm sure forensic uh, phoneticians would tell me it would depend on the quality of the recording and what was said and things like that but um, and the, the quality of the evidence and the quality of the data but yeah I mean you know if you have a, a really distinctive voice but a really short recording of that voice um, would be potentially better data or at least more analyzable data than a two-hour recording of someone who didn't have a very distinctive voice um, but I'm sure there are maybe forensic phoneticians who would take issue with that but um, but yeah so th there's there's any number of things that people can use as measures on as a forensic speech science it can be things like your vowel and consonant pronunciations which as phonetic phonetic experts which they are trained as they can identify you know distinctive vowel formations consonant 
pr pronunciations um, and things like that. And at the same time, there's there's things that you can measure acoustically, like pitch of voice, rate of speech, things like that. Can I ask a naive question? Yeah. Do can forensic linguistics examine the use of silence? How people use silence? <laughs> Interesting. Um, they they can. So I, I guess um, you know hypothetically there may be a recording that's disputed um, and one of the features in that recording might be uh, untypically long pauses, pauses for yeah. instance um, which would be which you know you know never say never don't throw the baby out with the bathwater would be would be you know obviously there's there's less literature on that sort of thing as far as I'm aware than there is on other features of voice but yeah I mean why not um, you know it would have to be in combination with something else it couldn't just be an hour recording of nothing but um, but yeah another area where silence is dead interesting which isn't related to authorship analysis or forensic speech science is um, silence in police interviews oh that is interesting um, yeah. and you know the not necessarily just silence but perhaps even you know no comment interviews in a in a jurisdiction where you know you're innocent until you're proven guilty and you have the right to not say anything and in, in in order to not you know you have the right to remain silent yeah. Miranda rights, um, yeah. but in in practice uh you know if there's a police interview where all of the questions are met with no comment or a silence as a juror um what indication might you you take what what imaginative leaps might you take about that person on the basis of an interview where they didn't say anything. So that's one area where, I know that's not what you were getting at, but mm. but one area where the lack of utterance, if you like, could be dead interesting. Could be dead interesting. Mm. It would kind of, I guess, go against the grain of what a linguist is about, isn't it? As it <laughs> yeah. It's about voice and noise and <laughs> yeah. language and speech and yeah. all of these things. Yeah, I suppose so. And again, you know, uh, um, it might be, you know, the, the length of pause, for instance, or the shortness of pause even might be. Or the lack of pause, maybe. Yeah, yeah, it, might yeah. Be, it might be, you know, so untypical in a given population that it suddenly becomes something that a, a forensic phonetician needs to take note of if they're trying to, to, to get a profile of a speaker or trying to compare speakers. One of the other things you've done research in there, David, is um, you had a, a Leverhulme uh, grant and you were looking at the incitement of violence against women on online discussion forums. So I was wondering, could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so that was a British Academy Leverhulme funded project, which is ongoing, actually. And... Um, <laughs> Sort of serendipitously, um, I was reading a, a book on holiday. I was supposed to be on holiday, but I was reading a book called The Cyber Effect. Um, and it was the chapters that I, I got through. It was a good book. The chapters that I got through were sort of making the link between people's online behavior and offline behavior. Um, in fact, the context that was given was um, Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh, and, you know, how that, that those sort of ideologies and practices might... Uh, influence people's offline behavior for, for better or for worse. And um, I had an idea about a particular community uh, online in the manosphere, if you like, of this sort of... The manosphere? Yeah, really? this sort of... Men, it, Some men's right activists. Yeah, that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, perfectly sort of on the on the clear web, not sort of, you know, in the in the dark web or anything like that. Perfectly sort of Googleable um, and and things like that. About just discussion forums where people were talking about picking up women. Um, because there's a big community called the Pickup Artist Community, which 
um, you know, pride themselves on sharing advice and things about. I mean, I'm not I'm not an expert in the pickup artist community by any means. So it's kind of like a forum on how to pull. Yeah, and there, there are lots of them, um, and yeah, basically, um, and you know, a lot of those conversations are um, are, are fine. Um, some of them are misogynistic. Um, some of the ideologies underlying the idea that you can you can go through a certain script and routine and, and bed a woman is probably misogynistic. Um, is it one like what you were trying to find was? Um what you were focusing on, I guess, or zoning in on was the incitement of violence against women. Yeah, to see whether it was there, because I didn't know whether it was. Um, and I guess what part of the problem is that is what constitutes incitement. So your sort of first first example from, from Shakespeare um, mm, right. would be would be something that I would sort of need to get an expert's opinion on. But what I was, was interested in looking for was places where these group members were sort of given advice support or field reports where they write on these forums about their experiences with with women and how successful they were by doing x y and z so they could have just been lying they, they could have been for sure i mean you know I, I, and my, my job was never to sort of say oh this person's committed a crime that's not what i'm interested mm. in i'm interested in the discourses that swirl around in these places with the idea that that might then affect someone's offline behavior if they were susceptible to those sort of ideologies um what did you find I found some some um, some really interesting um, intersections between ideas of consent and resistance that these that these people were um, were discussing. So, one of the, the the big findings in forensic linguistic discourse analysis in terms of courtroom examination is the ideological questioning of people who are alleged to be rape victims and how the defence barristers or attorneys um, sort of shape or reshape the alleged victims narratives in order for it to make look and make it look like they gave consent and that often draws on rape myths and tropes like you were drunk what were you wearing you were nice to him earlier in the day yeah. all of that sort of stuff which is regularly drawn upon by cross-examining barristers who are you know for all intents and purposes and I'm sure they would argue doing their job for their client um, who, um, yeah, th those narratives are transformed into narratives of consent, and if it's consensual, then there was no crime committed. So this is being so. Say the tropes that you're talking about, which mm. are being replicated by barristers who mm. um, sort of defend, uh, say, for example, men against allegations of yeah. uh, sexual violence. Yeah. This is being replicated in these forums. Well, what I've actually found is, and what um, Susan Ehrlich, who writes about uh, fantastically about that sort of courtroom discourse, um, an ideological question of women, is that women um, have to display or demonstrate that they put up the utmost resistance. Now, what that constitutes... That could be anything from saying no to getting a machine gun. Like. Well, yeah, exactly. And... and um, and that's the ideology that that women are up against is that they have to prove utmost resistance in order for it to have definitely not been consensual and therefore definitely been sexual assault what i found in this this data which is not yet published um is that women are actually up against ideologies of utmost perseverance by blocks could you explain explain sure. that so that in the forums that i've been looking at we have uh, clear examples where men talk about experiencing resistance from women and what they've done to get around that 
Um, some of them are, are, are as brazen as I just pushed through and did it anyway. I'm obviously paraphrasing, but that's the idea. And and others dismiss the resistance of women, or at least insofar as they report them online, dismiss the resistance that they experience from women as either being what they call an anti-slut defense, so women feel like they have to put up a barrier so that they don't feel so badly about themselves when they eventually, inevitably, give it up to the bloke. Um, they dismiss it as being... Um, not important resistance and and a challenge to overcome and and those are the metaphors and the, the the discourses that emerge is that it's almost like a combat situation it's almost like a battlefield whereby resistance is something to be broken down or overcome or breached and rather than you, agreement oh for sure and and if and if you if you uh, if you get through it then it's a success so I wonder I mean that's really interesting right I mean um, is there any chance you could apply this to some of the language in sort of um, well, I guess uh, trials about sex, uh, sexual violence trials or rape trials. I mean, where there's a, you know, I mean, if these myths and these tropes are coming up again and again and mm. again, surely that would be a place for forensic linguistics to apply their tools and their methodology to, um, to what sort of, a, yeah, for well, sure. for prosecutors and defenders sure. are doing. I think the work that's been done in discourse analysis on that area about relying on damaging ideological assumptions and rape myths. Um, in the cross-examination of rape victims uh, it has been established to the extent where you know the, ex the, the it's often reported that the experience of cross-examination is is re-victimizing the victims it's 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 reliving it it's it's I wouldn't go as far as to say it's, it's almost as bad as the initial offense but it's a horrendous experience and that's well established now that that happens and there are various things that are trying to be put in place various special measures that are trying to be put in place to protect vulnerable witnesses from that sort of thing so for instance um the the recent government policy to cross-examine or for the the cross-examination to be conducted via uh, recorded and then presented in court rather than having the alleged rape victim stand in court and be, be grilled um but I guess the resistance that they'll always come up against is that the barristers are just doing their jobs. Um, they're just, they have to prove that they're, they're, they're well, and they the, might be, that their their client is innocent. Yeah, that is the justice system, like that they yeah. have to, well, people, they will argue, I guess, that people are entitled to a fair trial and yeah, they I mean, should have a defence. To the extent, you know, that, you know, that the fact that you'd had a drink was the fact that you gave consent is, is obviously ridiculous, but... Um, I don't know, and there are people who are doing work in this area far more than I am, who would have better recommendations and the better ways forward. But I, I hope that, and not just not just these cases, but I hope that we'd move towards a fairer cross-examination process generally. Um, but yeah, the resistance is always going to be between someone who says, look, this is unfair, and someone who says, I'm just doing my job. Now, um, I guess I have one last question to ask you. Um, I mean... I mean, it's sort of a, I can think of it from a philosophical perspective. I mean, classical exposition of what language is is in Aristotle, where he <laughs> says, uh, zuon, logon, ekon, uh, which sounds a lot better in uh, the Greek than the English. <laughs> but what it means is the the human being is the animal that speaks. The human, that's what distinguishes okay, yeah, us. Yeah. yeah. Well, so um, I wonder, what is it about the voice that fascinates you? What is it? <laughs> what do you love about this? Um, what is it? What do you, you, you think about it all the time? Yeah, I like it that well from a practical perspective and I, I wouldn't put this on the top of my list as to why I like doing linguistics but 
the data is easy to come by because <laughs> there's lots of it for everywhere. Um, I like that it's integral to everything that we do. I like it that, um, in fact, oddly enough, forensic linguistics was the reason that I chose to do A-level English, A-level English language and then a degree in English language at university. At that time, it was an English language branded degree. I didn't know what linguistics was until I walked through the door. Um, and I, I really wanted to, <laughs> when I was first doing English language as a, a degree level, I wanted to to study how I could use language in ways to how I could become an expert in communication, I guess is what I wanted and and how I could use language to get what I wanted and how I could analyze other lang- other people's language to see if they were trying to get one over on me and so things like that. And forensic linguistics was something that I was interested in from day one and it it just so happened that the journey was that I, I became interested in, and obviously fully involved in that now. But um, I don't know. I like I like the idea of choice. I like the idea of um, how people change their language use in terms of the context that they're. I mean, almost instantly. You know, we were using language in a very different way the second before you said you're recording now to what we are now. You know, yeah, it does. I, I love that. I love that dynamism. I love the the variability and. On the other hand, I also love the predictability and the patterns that emerge and um, making new discoveries about something that is so common and so pervasive that you would think almost, you know, what else What else can you know? You know, what, oh, well, well, you, well, you speak English, so why are you doing a degree in English language? Um, I, love, I love the idea of choice. I love the idea of predictability and unpredictability. And, uh, uh, yeah, I love that it's everywhere. David Wright, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Patrick. Cheers. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Well. Our theme tune is Love the Government by Il Papa Giraffe and is licensed under Creative Commons. You can follow us on iTunes or your preferred podcast app.